This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today is March 29, 2012. And our guest is Eric Dawson, president of Peace First, an organization dedicated to building effective school climates by teaching children the skills of conflict resolution and civic engagement and providing educators with the critical skills and knowledge to integrate social emotional learning into their school's curriculum and culture. Eric is a graduate of Harvard University, having earned his undergraduate degree there, as well as a master's in education and a master's in divinity. As a student at Harvard, Eric developed Peace Games as an annual festival where children gathered to play cooperative games and share their dreams about peace. Eric later developed the program into a full nonprofit organization now known as Peace First. And I know, Eric, you have many, many accomplishments with this organization, having taught over 40,000 students critical conflict resolution skills, created something like over 2,500 peacemaker projects, We know that you recruited about 4,000 volunteers who provided 400,000 hours of volunteer teaching service, having trained more than 2,500 teachers in conflict resolution and classroom management. So you are up there with one of the great empathy, the great empathy leaders of our time. And um, Eric, you're originally from Columbus, Ohio. Do I have that right? I am a Midwestern boy by birth and disposition. Great. And you're also both an Ashoka Fellow and an Echoing Green Fellow. So welcome to our conversation today. Thanks for having me. Yes, I was reflecting. This is such a timely moment to talk about your work with the nation transfixed by the Trayvon Martin case in Florida. And people across the country focused on the question of why our society is so violent and why it is so quick to resort to violence as a way of resolving differences. And one of the things, but one of the things I'd really like to do today is go deeper than the headlines and beyond the organizational mission statements and really get a sense of how you do what you do. So I'd like you to go back to your college days and talk about what inspired you to create the programs that led to Peace First. So uh, I started Peace First when I was uh, 18 years old, uh, back in 1992. And uh, 1992 was the height of the youth violence epidemic in the United States. Uh, We saw huge increases in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, in young people um, being shot, stabbed, uh, witnessing violence in their communities, um, a lot of concern about the violence that young people see through media, whether it's video games or, or on television or movies. Um, and what I realized, and unfortunately, David, this hasn't changed much uh, in the past 20 years, uh, is that we fundamentally look at young people uh, in one of two roles, right? Young people are either victims of violence, uh, and so we need to keep them safe and protect them, uh, or they are perpetrators of violence, and we need to stop and punish them. Uh, so we incarcerate young people, we medicate young people, we turn our schools into prisons, either literally with police officers and metal detectors, um, or figuratively with zero-tolerance policies. And uh, neither of those roles speaks to the full uh, role that young people play in, in, in our lives and their lives, which is that 
uh, in addition to being victims and perpetrators, young people are also peacemakers, right? That, that every day in our country, young people are doing good things. They are engaged in their communities or they're resolving conflicts without fighting. Uh, and we have this, this deficit model of thinking and talking about young people. Um, and so our big idea has been instead of understanding young people's problems that we either need to protect or fix, uh, to, to see them as problem solvers. Um, and so at the core of what Peace First does is we prepare young people uh, to be problem solvers uh, with, with this, this somewhat radical idea that just as we teach kids how to read and write, uh, we need to teach them uh, how to be empathic, uh, how to resolve conflicts uh, peacefully, how to work together uh, to solve problems, to communicate ideas, uh, and to be integrated, uh, powerful, transformative members of their communities. I resonate so much with what you said about the 80s and also have experienced in living in urban areas. I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, and went to schools that were where there, were, there was quite a bit of violence. And then my early years were uh, practicing law in Philadelphia in the prosecutor's office. So mm-hmm. I experienced that um, culture, particularly associated with the crack epidemic. And um, I think that you're right, this problem-solving deficit view of the world that fails to see people as transformative agents of change is really something that your work seems to address so powerfully. Um, can you give us an example, an outline of how your program works today in schools? What is the way of engagement and how do children actually engage with the curriculum that you provide? Sure. So, so the way Peace First works, so, so our goal is to integrate peacemaking into the core DNA of schools. Uh, and so peacemaking for us brings together two big ideas. Um, it brings together the core skills of social-emotional learning, uh, empathy, perspective-taking, conflict resolution, uh, with the critical skills of civic engagement, uh, what it means to be living and, and working in a democracy, uh, so how to solve problems collaboratively, um, how to reach and work across lines of difference, and also how to create a shared sense of responsibility. Uh, so when we talk about peacemaking, we're not talking about holding hands and singing songs. Uh, we're not talking about inner peace meditation. We're not talking about master's degree in peace studies. We're talking about uh, a concept of peacemaking that is very muscular uh, and very accessible, that's focused on these uh, issues of uh, compassion, uh, of courage, of, of taking risks to help other people, uh, in, in collaborative uh, community change. Um, and so we do this through two levers. Um, the first is that students at Peace First schools uh, receive Peace First as a class. So just like they might get math, reading, writing, uh, students get Peace First uh, every week for an hour, uh, starting in preschool when they're three or four years old and continuing all the way through eighth grade. Uh, so nine to ten years of integrated uh, peacemaking education. Um, the curriculum is mapped onto the academic frameworks of the school, so it connects directly to literacy and social studies, critical thinking, uh, and it's all taught through experiential education. So students have to get out of their seats to explore ideas and concepts of conflict resolution, cooperation, and communication. Um, the curriculum is taught by the classroom teacher, uh, but supported by a Peace First AmeriCorps member. Um, we work with uh, a school and teachers over three years. Uh, really to help coach and model and support their integration of these ideas uh, into their daily practice. Um, Students spend the first half of the year learning a a concept, a skill. So our uh, very young children uh, learn how to uh, express their feelings. They learn about concepts of friendship. 
our, our third through fifth graders explore issues of inclusion and exclusion, issues related to communication, uh, intergroup conflict resolution, um, and then our middle school students really explore issues related to uh, identity, uh, gender, race, uh, sexuality, uh, and issues related to power. Um, and uh, so the first half of the year, students are practicing uh, skills. Uh, and the, the curriculum is all taught, uh, as I said, through activities. So, you know, David, if you and I were teaching fifth graders, um, and the fifth grade curriculum focuses on conflict resolution skills, uh, you and I would go into the classroom and, um, you know, you're the classroom teacher, I'm, I'm a numerical member, and you would say, okay, students, take out uh, your journals and a writing activity. We're going we're gonna to start uh, with, with our journals. And at the same time, I say, okay, when stand up, we're going to play a game. And you and I look at each other and I say, David, man, remember, uh, today we're going to start with the game first. And you say something like, well, Eric, if you turn up to our planning meeting on time for once, you would know that we were, we're starting this week with the journals. And I said, well, frankly, David, if, if your mom addressed you better, and you say, well, if your breath wasn't so stinky. So we, we get into a fight uh, right. in, in the middle of the class. <laughs> um, the students, as you can imagine, are surprised by this. And we would freeze and say, well, what did you just see? And the kids say, oh, he... He made fun of your mama. He called your breath stank. Well, what is this, right? And this idea of conflict, right? Conflict is a natural part of human relations. Right? Anyone who's, who's married or raising kids or working somewhere experiences conflict in their lives. Um, and, and, and so we don't go into classrooms and say, okay, kids, don't fight, because that's a slogan, not a tool. Um, but we get students to help create their own definitions for what conflict is. And then the next week, the students will get to come up and act out our conflict except we throw in different escalators. Um, so how would our conflict have been different if, if you were yelling or if I had done this 10 times before? Or what if you had a weapon? Or what if I had 10 of my boys with me? Uh, so we get kids to be critical uh, consumers of conflict. And, and then the next week, uh, they would actually get out of their seats and run in place for 90 seconds and feel their pulse and feel their breathing. And we were talking about anger as a, as a physiological reaction to stimulus. Right, something pisses you off, you get angry. Right. Um, okay. Well, what do you do with that energy? Um, so the the first half of the year is really about building those those concrete skills, uh, as well as those mental frameworks that students really get to co-create. And the second half of the year, every single one of our students, from the from the itty bitty ones up to the teenagers, um, has to identify a problem that's important to them and to their community, uh, work together to come up with the solution, and then implement it. Uh, so we have kindergartners uh, here in New York who start recycling programs. Uh, we have third graders in Boston who are being picked on by the eighth graders in their K-8 school, uh, and their solution was to create a yoga program for the, for the eighth graders. And these eight-year-olds had no idea what yoga was, but they thought it might calm the middle school students down. So <laughs> you know, they put together a presentation for their principal about the benefits of yoga. They wrote letters to yoga teachers in the community, um, and those eighth graders had yoga for their last period every day. We had another group of eighth graders who thought their teachers were sexist. Um, basically, the issue was that the teachers would ask the, the the boys to move boxes and desks, but not the girls. Of course, the girls are four times the size of the boys. Um, and they thought this wasn't fair, so they put together a professional development workshop on Title IX and gender discrimination. It was a beautiful workshop. Again, it was kids, young people, developing this work for teachers. Um, so that, that, that's the first lever that we work on is, is an integrated set of lessons that's, you know, 300 weeks long from pre-kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, and then the second lever is really working on, on the school culture, really working on the skills of teachers. 
Um, so every single teacher we work with gets trained on how to integrate this into their practice. Uh, we do more direct coaching with, with teachers who are struggling with implementation. And then we work with the leadership team of the school, both the, the formal leaders, so the principal, assistant principal, uh, but also the informal leaders, the, the guidance counselors who have been there for 20 years, the, the lunch monitors that all the kids love. Uh, and we work on the school cultures. We work on family engagement, work on school discipline. We work on building a set of rituals and practices that communicate a clear set of values. And what we've been able to do uh, through, through our evaluation work, uh, largely supported by the Harvard School of Education, uh, is, is pretty dramatically reduce levels of violence in our schools. So there's significantly and statistically less racial slurs, verbal altercations, uh, physical fights, defacement of property. Um, but more importantly, we've been able to increase the pro-social efficacy of our students. Uh, after about 18 months, our students show uh, pretty strong increases in their abilities to resolve conflicts without fighting, uh, to engage other kids in their playing activity, and my personal favorite, to stand up for somebody who's being picked on. Yeah, that's pa so powerful. So a few strands I just wanted to comment on and, and then do a follow-up. One is just this real focus on skills, as you said, uh, breaking this down and looking at conflict resolution as something that you don't just understand but that you do and practice. The integration with service learning, which is so powerful, and then also the work on the leadership and the culture and the adults in the system. So these three components. One of the things that you uh, I read about is that you really have a an important model about how to select the schools that you work with. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, it's, uh, we've worked with schools for a long time. We've probably worked with, well, we're, we're now in our hundreds, um, as well as doing training in, in 32 states and 23 countries. Um, so my fundamental belief, I've been doing this work for two decades, is, is a program uh, like Peace, Peace First or, or, or Roots of Empathy or Playworks um, it needs to be in every school. Right. These issues of violence and disengagement aren't limited to certain communities. Uh, this is a universal problem. You know, violence looks different in different neighborhoods, uh, but it's there uh, and it's problematic. Um, what we look for uh, in our schools, um, you know, we operate in, in cities, so we're, we're in Boston, Los Angeles, and New York, but we've also run a program in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. We help the government of Columbia create their national frameworks for civic engagement. They have a fascinating partnership with, with the EU and the World Bank with 23 one-room schoolhouses in, in the mountain areas on the border with Venezuela. Um, what we look for are three things. So, so one is um, uh, that the schools identified a need um, that we meet. Uh, and the need could vary. Uh, everything from disengaged families to uh, community violence is taking place in their neighborhood um, to just wanting to engage their students more powerfully and proactively as community problem solvers. Um, so we, we look for the, the, the need um, that's been defined by the school. Uh, the second is buy-in. Uh, you know, this is not a one-day, let's put on a T-shirt, uh, watch a video kind of program. This is an intense, um, you know, decade-long process um, that involves a tremendous amount of buy-in. Um, so we spend a lot of time with teachers, parents, students, ensuring that um, what we do is actually what they want. Um, and then the third thing that we look for is a commitment. Um, to uh, multi-year commitment uh, to, to getting uh, this program to take root. Um, so, you, you know, um, the, the, we often, the way I often describe this is, you know, when, when we first get started in a school, it's, you know, the, the expression is, oh, this is peace first, right? Because to actually do it, it's hard to really understand it. 
Right. Um, and then, then that moves into, uh, um, uh, you know, we have peace first at our school, right? The sense that, you know, peace first is now located in their building and making things happen um, to this, this third phase, which is, you know, we are a peace first school, uh, you know, where, where the school moves from, um, you know, identifying us as a program to really um, uh, self-identifying that this is who they are. Um, I'll share a very quick story. There's a school that we, we work with in Boston, K-8 school, uh, tremendously under-resourced uh, in terms of uh, just adults to um, do everything that needs to, to be doing. Um, and so it was, a, it was a lunch period, which is a particularly violent time in schools, unfortunately. Uh, and there were no teachers in the lunchroom. And there were two fifth-grade girls who got into a fight. One fifth-grade girl bumped another fifth-grade girl. She's like, what are you doing? What are you doing, your mama? So they started getting into a fight in the middle of the, the lunchroom. Um, and it was a group of sixth graders who stood up and they broke that fight up. Wow. And what they said is, um, we don't fight at the school because we're a peace-first school. You know, they, they didn't say, we, we don't fight because someone might catch us or, right. you know, let's, let's move this uh, after school. Um, but it was, we don't fight because it's not who we are. Um, and, and that's really the evolution that, that we work to take our students and their schools through. So really a transformation in their personal identity and how they think about their values as they relate to conflict resolution and empathy. Exactly. The, <clears throat> let me follow up. That example is so powerful and it raises two issues that I really wanted to go a little deeper into. One is this thing that you talked about that's so important, courage, the idea of taking a stand to protect someone or to attempt to de-escalate uh, a situation that's gotten out of control. And the other one is just that whole challenge of how do you de-escalate conflict? How do you take two people that may be really at each other's throats and get them back into a mode that's more productive? Very uh, complex, difficult. Uh, what are the tools that you bring to children to help them do those things? It's, it's a great question. Um, you know, conflict is, is, uh, can be a sticky and, and tricky mess. Right, so you and I might get into a conflict over, I don't know, lunch money, um, but really our, our conflict has to do with uh, a thousand other things. Right, right. So something you said to me two weeks ago, um, something that's going on for me at home that has absolutely nothing to do with you. Um, something that's going on in your life that has absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, and so our strategy with our students uh, is not to go in and say don't fight, um, partly because for a number of our students, um, it's not a reality I like, but they're actually safer sometimes if they have a fight than if right. they don't. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if I don't acknowledge that and, and, and live with that, um, then I've, I've got no credibility and we've got no credibility. Right. Um, so the idea is not about fighting or not fighting. Um, the idea is to insert um, that in every situation, and then I mean this, in every situation, we always have a choice. Um, and so my job as a peace educator uh, in, in schools is, is to help students always understand that they have an alternative and to help them imagine what that alternative could be. Mm. Um, and so what we do with our students um, is have them come up and think about those alternatives and then try them out. Um, so going back to the example I gave around the, the conflict resolution um, set of lessons with fifth graders, you know, after we explore anger and, and de-escalation, uh, we talk about conflict resolution, and the students really have to come up with their own strategies for resolving conflict. Mm. Uh, and each classroom is different. So some students have four or five steps that they might do. Others have like a choose-your-own-adventure for different situations. Mm. Um, but the idea is to let students come up 
um, with 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 some smart ideas. You know, again, our our teachers bring resources and ideas too. Sure. Um, so it may be, um, and this is something a lot of um, effective students use is humor, right? To to dif- diffuse a situation. Um, so you know, if, if we're having an issue, um, I, I might I might tell a self depreciating joke, and suddenly the tension is gone, right? Because people are laughing. Right. Um, and what I'm particularly interested in, and what our program's particularly interested in, is in that moment of a conflict, whether it's a fight or something else. Um, most of the time, you know, there's the the the, the victim and, and the perpetrator, right, or the the victim and the aggressor. Um, and sometimes it's hard to know who's who because we switch those roles back and forth. Um, but then the bystanders, right, the people who are who are part of that situation, who are standing around. Uh, and we're particularly interested in what do those folks decide to do, right? So when a fight breaks up, do they circle up and chant, fight, fight, fight? Right. Um, or do they step in and say, this isn't what we do. This isn't who we are. Mm. Um, and so it is really, um, and, and being a bystander is really hard. Mm-hmm. Intervening, I mean, I just think about the situations, you know, I'm in all the time where I see something that, that I think is inappropriate um, or something that's on the subway, you know, what we want to do is we want to shrink, right? We want to disappear, right? We want to say that's not my problem. Right. Um, and, and our work with young people and our work in schools, and I think this is the key um, to being a peacemaker, and this is actually, I think, the key uh, to, to empathy, um, is understanding uh, that you have not only that there's a role you can play, but that you have an obligation to play a role. Right, right. right. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that if there's a fight, that your job is to step in and break it up. Because yeah. um, that can be very dangerous. Yeah. Um, but it might be to get a teacher, um, or it might be to help other people feel safe, um, or it might be you know one of the thousand roles. Um, and, and, and nothing uh, feels um, makes young people feel more powerless than being in a moment where something's going down and feeling like there's nothing you can do about it. Right. And, and again, what we want to offer is that alternative, um, that option, that possibility that the world can be a different place. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Eric Dawson, CEO and founder of Peace First. Well, and when you when you live in a very violent culture, another lesson I think you learn is that a survival strategy is to mind your own business. You know, to yeah. stay in the background because there's so many risks associated with stepping forward. So to get someone to learn how the group can support that kind of an intervention. The other thing I'd love to hear you com- comment on is just this whole culture of violence that's reinforced by the media where we become spectators to violence and it becomes a form of entertainment, which is 
I think is so dysfunctional, <laughs> but changing the culture to make that not happen or to get people to see see that as being just one among other choices of which there are better. And I guess part of that is building a culture that embraces, as you said, that, that puts peace first and that doesn't value situations like that where people are being hurt or terrified. One of the most powerful things that came out of uh, the, the late 80s, early 90s from the public health community and researchers uh, was this idea that violence is preventable. Right. Uh, which was a radical idea at the time, because before that there were good kids and there were bad kids, and good kids did good things and bad things to bad kids. And what the public health community helped us understand is that, that violence is a learned behavior. Um, and, and once you understand violence as a learned behavior, uh, it opens up tremendous possibilities of offering an alternative. Um, and uh, we do an incredible job in this country of teaching young people how to be violent. You know, yeah. the, the, the fact that you know, by the time children finish sixth grade, they've seen 100,000 acts of violence on right. television. Right, and they go home and play um, video games and watch it in movies, and it's just, it is reinforced. It's it's particularly striking. It, it, it's, it's our politicians, right? I mean, yeah. it, it is literally everywhere. And I am, uh, you know, deeply opposed to the idea of, um, you know, media censorship, um, you know, even as I'm horrified by the violence that young people see. Um, and I'm much more interested in how we help young people develop media literacy, um, right? So how we help young people be powerful consumers of images. Um, so a lot of what we do in our curriculum, particularly in our middle school, particularly around images related to gender, um, is get young people to be critical consumers of information um, so they can then help, uh, help change the system. Um, and, and so for us, our, our next big project um, is... is um, figuring out how do we scale up uh, this idea of youth peacemaking, right? So how do we how do we um, turn, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, youth peacemaking into a lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Right? How do we how do we rebrand peace into something that's much more accessible for young people? Uh, and and so th- this fall we're going to launch uh, a, basically a, a Nobel Peace Prize for kids, mm. right? So uh, it's 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 called the Peace First Prize, and it's our attempt. Uh, around this hypothesis, at this point it's just a hypothesis, um, um, but, but I, th- I think it's right that, that young people are tremendously hungry um, to, to have an identity, a meaning, uh, an orientation uh, that is powerful, um, that, 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 that we do not call our young people to anything as a country. And then, of course, we're shocked that they don't show up. Um, and so the, the, the Peace First Prize will be a national campaign. Uh, we've got a great group of celebrity ambassadors. Uh, we, we signed up, you know, 4-H and City Year and Teacher America and Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Girl Scouts, you know, American Association of School Administrators, a great national network of of um, nonprofit partners who will distribute this uh, on the ground. Uh, and we're basically going to run a, a national campaign to identify young people between the ages of 8 and 22 uh, who've been peacemakers. Um, and we're not looking for the, for the young person who raises $10 million for schools in Haiti. Uh, we're looking for the kid who brings together rival gangs in our public housing development or, or the young person who starts a, a gay-straight alliance to change the culture of her school mm. uh, when her best friend gets beat up, right? those delicate, transformative, courageous acts of peace. Um, and then we want to do two things. We want to tell those stories in some very powerful ways. Um, and then we'll also award um, a, a prize to, to 10 young people uh, that will include a two-year $50,000 fellowship. Wow! An opportunity to to really invest in these young people's skills. Did you say a fellowship or a scholarship? Did you say it's a fellowship? A fellowship. So it's, it's, yeah, that's it's, great. 
Mm. It's $50,000 to go to their peacemaking work or their education. Mm. Um, but more importantly, we'll, we'll bring these young people together, you know, three times a year. Um, and, and really the, the idea is to create a national cadre of, of youth leaders. So you know, God forbid there's another school shooting and they're on CNN next to the police commissioner and the mental health expert. We want a, we want a 17 year old peace first fellow offering a different side of the story. Mm. That is really going to be exciting to see that un- unroll. What's the timing on that? Tell us again, what's the timing? When will you um, select the first winners? So the plan is to launch in the fall um, and, and to um, have three or four months of receiving nominations. It'll all happen online. Uh, we hope to get hundreds, if not thousands, of young people nominated. Um, and the great thing is it's open to anyone between the ages of 8 and 22 uh, here in the United States. So you know, right now we're so limited in terms of our impact, in terms of where we've got offices in three cities. But this really lets us call and engage much more broader um, network of, of young people. Um, and then we'll, we'll have semifinalists and finalists, and then our hope is to announce um, the, the 10 winners uh, next spring, early summer. Terrific. That is so terrific. Let me ask you a question that's a little bit more abstract, but I'm so interested in this. Coming from Harvard University, I'm very familiar with uh, the work that's been done there. I didn't go to Harvard, but I'm very familiar with the work that's been done there from the, I guess they call it the Harvard Negotiation Project, you know, Roger Fisher and William Urey, and they've had a huge impact on how people think about negotiation as collaboration and we use a lot of their work in our leadership development practice. I'm curious what your exposure is to that. Do you rely on some of their work in your work? And if there are other thinkers about this important subject, who do you advocate people look to? Uh, first of all, uh, Roger Fish was, was, a, was a huge help for us when we were getting started. Um, oh, there's a funny story about him. He's a lovely human being. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, but very uh, cerebral and academic, and, yes. and we, we had him. We had him be a, a guest speaker at our, our first festival of peace in, in ninety uh, spring of ninety three, and so we brought him to Harvard Stadium to speak to you know two thousand, you know fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, uh, and it was um, one of. And I've made many bad decisions. It was, it was like a, <laughs> sort of a, a lose lose situation for everyone involved. Um, so what, what I love about the work that the Harvard Project uh, Program on Negotiation has done is it's helped demystify this idea um, and, and in some sense created systems and, and, and frankly rituals and practices that can support um, honest communication and healthy conflict resolution. Um, the, the challenge, of course, um, like any system, is um, there, there are cultural constructs that um, support those, those uh, systems and methods and get in the way of it. Um, you know, so there, there are ways in which those strategies, places where those strategies work and places where they don't. And that's true for all strategies. Right. You know, there, there's this native uh, Hawaiian uh, form of mediation, which I've just studied a little bit, um, uh, called Ho'oponopono, um, which is based on this idea of, uh, I think that the little, literal translation is to make right. But the idea is when there's a conflict that the community is hurting. Um, and so it, the, the, that conflict resolution is, is set up in a circle um, with the entire community involved, uh, which is very different from um, uh, sort, of, sort of Roger's work, uh, which is more about you know, who the parties are. What they're saying is everyone's a party to this. Right. And the mediator, who's, who's called a haku, is, um, is, is, not, um, is not impartial. 
um, right? Uh, you know, the, which is also there's particular values around impartiality that resonate in some context and not in others. So the hakus will say, you know, shut up, you're talking too much, and you know, <laughs> you you did that two weeks ago. You know, I knew your cousin because um, it's it's not about assigning blame, um, but it's more of a spiritual process of of, of making things right. Right. Um, and, and I think about the work of restorative justice. Um, in circle work uh, that also comes from um, you know Aboriginal communities, Native communities, um, uh, and, and so what I've become a fan in terms of developing our own work um, is less around prescribing specific methodologies uh, and more introducing young people to a variety of choices so they get to try things on uh, and see what works and see what doesn't. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I, I owe my work largely to folks like uh, Piaget and Kohlberg and, and Carol Gilligan, who you know, have done this really powerful moral development work, um, which has really framed our, uh, the, the sequential nature of our curriculum. So what young you know, kindergartners and first graders need to learn about peacemaking is very different from you know, 14, 15-year-olds. Right. Um, and of course, the other person is John Dewey, you know, had this very powerful idea um, well, well, two. One is that the, the democracy has to be reborn in every generation, and education is its midwife. That the, mm. the role of, of public education is less around math and science and more about building these, these essential civic skills. Um, and then, of course, his idea that, that schools have uh, what, what he called the concurrent curriculum, uh, what I like to call the invisible curriculum, uh, and that schools teach things uh, not, not based on what's in the lesson plan, uh, but how do they welcome students when they walk in the building? Um, how do adults talk to each other? Um, so there's this powerful um, education system that's taking place. It has absolutely nothing to do with what's in textbooks, but everything to do with the school culture. Right. So the whole social-emotional learning component and the whole idea of experiencing the institution and the community of the school, that that's just as powerful as the concepts that you might pick up when you open up the books and um, engage. So yeah, that's, that, that's a very powerful idea. Have you guys thought about writing a book or have you written a book or have you written articles uh, that talk about your unique approach to this? I'm just curious. It's a great question. You know, we've done some writing. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I started Peace First when I was 18 and, and then I think about my work in, you know, now decades. <laughs> um, you know, so our first decade was really about, you know, trying to figure out what our model was and test things out and begin building an organization. Uh, and, and our second decade was largely around um, trying to unlock scale. Um, part of which will happen through the Peace First Prize. We're also beginning to build a, a digital platform. So basically to, to take our curriculum, which now is very limited uh, and controlled and um, in binders in our offices, and see if we can break that open and make something um, that's less focused on, on accountability and impacts and more around access and engagement. So you're, you're a fourth grade teacher and, you know, Philadelphia, you could go online, type in fourth grade bullies, literacy, and lessons will pop out that you could turn around and use. Um, so I think this third cha uh, third decade that, that we're getting ready to start is going to be much more around um, what I would call public witness. Um, so how do we use what we've learned and built um, less about um, you know adding another school here or there, um, but really to, to do some larger scale collaboration to change systems. You know, what's great about the Peace First Prize is we get a partner with all these great national nonprofits, um, and it's truly um, partnerships. So the, you know, the Girl Scouts 
you know, want to drive this through their network, not just because the programming of peacemaking is a good fit, but they want one of their young people to be recognized, right? They want to be able to tell the story of Girl Scouts. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm loving moving into this role of doing more writing and uh, public speaking about, about what young people uh, not only are capable of doing, but are doing every day. How do you see this work connected to what Ashoka is trying to do in empathy right now? Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the empathy movement and how schools fit into that? Sure. You know, there are a couple of things that Ashoka does incredibly well. Um, now, of course, you and I are biased in this, but I think they right. do a good job of selecting handsome leaders. <laughs> um, the other thing I think they do is they identify trends. Right, so they have the ability to look across 3,000 fellows, fellows around the globe and begin to pick out things uh, that are that are macro. Um, and I think uh, what Ashoka has done so well is identified um, empathy as a critical skill um, in in their you know this idea that everyone can be a change maker um, idea. Um, and, and as Bill Drayton, what we'll talk about it is it is um, one of the most, if not the essential, skill of the 21st century. If young people aren't mastering and using uh, the skill of empathy, um, then we're not going to get the kind of transformational change that we need. Um, and so as, a, as an Ashoka Fellow, working with other Ashoka Fellows, it's been uh, working on how we can amplify that message, um, how do we begin to build cultures of empathy um, that, that not only uh, develop these skills in young people, but also uh, value those skills. And, and you know, what I love is this idea of, of fellows coming together, each with our little piece of the pie, right? So what we've got is this, this, this Peace First Prize, which will be a big national, eventually global project um, that is lifting some ideas uh, off the ground. Um, you know, my colleagues like Mary Gordon, um, you know, doing phenomenal work of, um, you know, unleashing uh, the, the, the concepts of, of empathy uh, with young people. Uh, you know, the work that, that Jill's doing, which is, you know, taking Joe Violet from Playworks to take this very barren uh, time in the school day uh, and repurposing it for something that is um, uh, building young kids' um, skills related to empathy. One of the things I'd like to talk about is this whole idea of the empathy culture and share one of my concerns. Uh, I've done so much work in my career with adult leaders, and one of the things that I've come to recognize is that Oftentimes, the systems that adults work in really change them dramatically. So you might take somebody that enters a system with a pretty good set of skills and and good intentions, good motivations, but after a few years being buffeted within the system, they learn that those behaviors are not adaptive. And essentially, unfortunately, what they sometimes do is learn to suppress their empathy mm-hmm. and and really come out at the back end with a lot of cynicism and some very bad habits and things that make the world more dysfunctional. So I think there's two ways of thinking about this. One is that you think about, well, how do we do system change work, which I see the empathy initiative being about, but also this question of building resilience and uh, building the courage to really change those systems instead of uh, being changed by them. Do you have any thoughts about that whole process? And, and particularly, I'd be curious to know whether now having done this work for 20 years, you know, do you see evidence that children that have more empathy development in their schooling 
are they more resilient? Can they become change agents in that system instead of being changed by the system? It's a great and complex question. You know, I, I always feel like um, my work is fundamentally about shifting and supporting adult behavior uh, than it is about young people. Uh, you know, what, what brain science is showing us is that we are hardwired for empathy, that it's, a, it's an essential survival skill, not just a nice, cute and fuzzy good thing to have. It's, it's how we are able to live. Right? You know, right. I'm here, you know, in Manhattan, which is, you know, four and a half million people. And uh, I saw this yesterday and I see this uh, almost every time I'm here where uh, there's a there's a parent in it with a stroller who, you know, goes to the um, the bottom of the stairs and whoever is in front of her or him just picks up the, the end of the stroller and, and brings the stroller upstairs. There's no communication about it. Right, but it's you know it's this wonderful empathetic gesture. This person can't get their baby upstairs, and um, and but you know it, it comes from the sense that you know if, if I don't, you know if we don't do it, none of us are getting upstairs, right? So, right. <laughs> you know this this this, this wonderful um, uh, sort of hardwiring that we have um, to be together in community. Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm um, uh, both um, humbled and, and inspired. Uh, um, by our ability to shift cultures. Um, so the inspiration is, I, I think, there are people working in systems um, who are doing a phenomenal change work within those systems. Um, it's one of the reasons that you know, I have a, a dear friend from college who went into the charter world, um, and I stayed in, you know, in terms of working within district schools. Um, and, and his thing was, I, I just I, I can't work in, in the system. Um, and we need to create a new system. Mm. My feeling was, yeah, we, we need to do that work, and uh, we, we got to work on the system, um, right? Because fundamentally, they're, they're good, thoughtful, loving people in, in systems, um, and, and and the systems, it's not not so much that they change the individuals, um, but they prevent them from fully expressing themselves. Right. Um, so I get inspired by by all the examples and on all the growth that I've seen. It's slow, it's painful, but it's happening as a positive change in the system. Um, and what's humbling to me is um, just how much work there is to do. Um, and so I, I take the long view of things that, you know, this, this is, this is a, a century-long effort, um, maybe longer, um, but, but it, is, it is shifting. I mean, the world's a different place than it was, you know, even 20 years ago and certainly 200 years ago in terms of how um, empathy plays a role in terms of the rights of, of, of people um, uh, globally uh, in terms of standard of living. Um, so, so our job, I think, as Ashoka Fellows, you know, particularly working in the sympathy world, is how do we accelerate that change, um, both, both being inspired by that possibility and, and humbled by the fact that um, we're just people. Terrific. I, I, we're coming to the end of our time, and there's one story I heard you tell. Really, it's a metaphor, a very powerful metaphor, which I think could be used to describe your work and, and also the work of the Ashoka Empathy Initiative, and that's the story of the two wolves. Would you, would you share that with our listeners? Yeah, it's one, one of my favorites that I heard from a mentor of mine and, and there are many versions of it, but the one that I know involves a grandfather and his grandson, and the grandfather is, is deeply upset, and the grandson sees this, and he approaches his grandfather and, and asks, Grandfather, what's, what's wrong? And the grandfather replies, My son, I feel like I have these two wolves, and they're fighting inside of me. 
Uh, one wolf is angry and, and violent and vengeful, and the other wolf is peaceful and loving and kind. And they're at battle inside my spirit. Grandson thinks about this for a moment and then turns to his grandfather and says, well, well grandfather, which, which wolf is going to win? To which his grandfather replies, my son, which, whichever wolf I choose to feed. Mm. And, and when I think about um, our, our work, and, and I mean our work with a capital O and a capital W, um, you know, our work as parents, our, our work as citizens, our work as humans, um, it is to um, constantly ask ourselves, how do we feed that wolf of peace, of compassion, of courage, um, both within ourselves and with other people? Um, because we get the children that we ask for, um, and we get the world that we ask for. Uh, and the problem is we, we ask for the wrong world, um, and then we get frustrated uh, that we didn't get what we wanted. Well, Eric, that's a beautiful place to leave the conversation, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us today and helping us figure out how to feed that loving wolf inside. Um, um, Eric, I also think that it would be great to um, plan in the future to have you back to talk again about the Youth Peace Prize when that is getting ready to be unleashed to the public. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Be well. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.